Thanks for the C for that. Okay, so we are going to continue in our series, Changed into His Image. And again, I'll say that um, this, this lesson series comes from a book by a man named Jim Berg. Awesome book. I, I've read it over and over again. And what makes it an awesome book is it's not his ideas. He just, here's what he does. It's like a sermon. You're just reading a sermon. He, he, he reads verses and he explains the verses and applies it to our life. It's exactly what we need. Uh, that's, the good, that's, the, that's a good book right there. A good book is one that points to Scripture and explains Scripture and just helps us to understand what God has already said, and I'm excited about it. And so if you don't have that book, um, I would encourage you to, to get it and read it. So, but we're teaching through it, and we're in Lesson 10, okay? And so let's go ahead and find our spot in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we will, whenever you find that, go ahead and stand. And we'll read Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then uh, we'll get into our lesson, which is titled this, Being a God-Loving Example. And as you're, you're going to see today, we're kind of making a transition in our series um, about how that we can take what we've learned and hopefully have applied personally and, and begin to, to give it to others, administer to others with what we've learned, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, ta- talks exactly about that. Um, the context is the home, you'll see. We'll start in verse number 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And so it all starts with us taking this serious, right? We need to be a good example, and that's what we're talking about today. But then, verse 6, and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently. You see the progress, the progression there? We need to take it serious. It needs to be a part of our life. But then after that, we start teaching it to others. Now the context is, is with your children. See that? Teach them diligently and to thy children. That's, where, that's the primary uh, instruction for your children. I'm thankful we have junior church and, and Sunday school and Patch the Pirate, but you are the primary teacher of your children. You need to pass these things to your children in the home as they watch you live it out, right? And we're just here to help you with that. We'll assist you, but you're the primary teacher of your children, okay? And here's what you do. You talk of them. What? Talk of what? The Word of God, the laws, which you've heard. When thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So Israel needed to teach the next generation by doing this, by first being an example, and then by also teaching them the words. You see? And that's, that's the model that God's given us, and, and it goes beyond our families, doesn't it? If we're going to impact anyone for God, here's how it starts. We need to take it seriously. We need to really believe it. We need to live it out, and then born out of our relationship with God, we teach others. Sound good? So we're going to talk about that today. Let's pray. We'll get into it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear that it is. Thank you, Lord, for our children. And Lord, the way that they've already served you this morning, we're so thankful. But God, I pray that you would help us to teach our children, Lord. And and, um, don't let it just be the kids who grow. Help us to grow. Help us to take these things seriously, and then born from that, Lord, be an example and teach. But help us to do that for each other. Help us to 
to help each other to live the life that you've called us to live. We need that. We need each other. And Lord, I pray that you bless every part of our service today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So right in our notes, we're going to get started. It says this. Hopefully, the first two sections, which were this, restraining your flesh and renewing your mind. That's kind of what we've talked about for the last nine lessons, about probably three months' worth of lessons here, that we've talked about restraining your flesh, renewing your mind. You need to put off the old life, put off what you think you want. I say think you want because you don't, you're not really going to want it when you get it. But put off what you think you want and the way you think, and then renew your mind and begin to think the way God thinks. And if you do those things, it will help you to overcome your flesh and be more and more into the image of Christ. But hopefully, as you've done that, you've been able to establish a Christ-like character. That's the blank there. A Christ-like character within you. Within you. Not just outward, but within you. And God intends to use what He has produced in your life to have a Christ-like influence on others. See? God is calling you to spiritual leadership. You. Well, you're the pastor. I am the pastor, and I have a, a, a specific role in leadership. But we are all called to sp spiritual leadership. We are all leading others. Whether we like it or not, we are leading others. And God wants us to use that, that influence we have, in a spiritual way. They're watching you. You are having an influence. Spiritual leadership does not mean that you must hold some official position in the church. J. Oswald Sanders, another great book that I've read, said this, Leadership is influence. The ability of one person to influence others to follow his or her lead. That's what leadership is. Sometimes we may call this influence ministry, discipleship, shepherding, spiritual parenting, or mentoring. But the purpose is the same, which is this, challenging others to change and to grow into Christ-likeness. And so no matter how you're involved in the ministry, you're leading, you're influencing, you're affecting lives, and it needs to be done in a spiritual way. And so by the end of this lesson, <clears throat> you should be able to do these things. Number one, explain how to make a difference, I'm sorry, to make a difference as a servant leader. That's the two blanks. Servant leader in the lives of others. We said this last week, but you're not going to be a good leader until you're first a good servant. And, and if, you are, if you're desiring to be elevated as a leader, you're probably not going to be. In the world, you will, right? In the world system, if you, if you want to be elevated as a leader, as a prominent figure, then all you got to do is scrap and claw, and eventually you'll make it. But in God's economy, in God's kingdom, Jesus said, those who will lead will serve. Right? And that's why Jesus knelt down and he washed the feet of his disciples, because leaders serve. And you're not going to be a good spiritual leader until you're first a good servant. You see. Yeah. Number two, understand how to test your real priorities in life. The blank is real. That means what your priorities actually are. We're going to talk about this. Not what you think your priorities are. There's a way to find that out. And the last one, recognize the extravagance in the life of those who love God. I'm excited about it, so we'll go right into it. Number one, how to make a difference. 
how to make a difference. This, is, this right here is profound. You have to be different to make a difference. And that sounds really simple, but so often this is not applied in life and in ministry. Well, what do you mean by that? Letter B. <clears throat> you cannot change anything by adding more of the same. You can't change anything by adding more of the same. God's plan has never been for us to be like the world in order to reach the world. If we're exactly like the world, then they're not going to be changed when they come here. Are you following? Jesus was never like the culture around him. And a lot of people hated him for that, but that's okay because you're not going to change anybody unless you're different than them. And so we don't model the world, but we also don't try to be different just for the sake of being different. Here's what we do. We live out the Word of God. And we don't worry about what the world says. We just do what the Bible says. And what's going to happen is you're going to be different than the world. But here's what that does, is that gives the world something different. You see? They need different. Our society needs different. Their way is not working. We don't need to be like them to reach them. It's the opposite. Okay. Um, if you have a glass of unsweetened iced tea, you cannot make the change the taste by pouring more unsweetened iced tea into the glass, right? You must add something different, such as sugar or lemon. A first century housewife did not preserve meat by wrapping a piece of meat in another piece of meat. She used salt. Your life is to be as salt. Darkness can only be changed by light, not additional darkness. You see? And so the greatest spiritual impact is made upon people by someone who is different from them. Okay? Now, I will say this. Jesus was different than the world, but he didn't... He didn't thumb his nose down to the world. You know what I'm talking about? He, he still ministered, didn't he? And he hung out. He, he, didn't, he didn't hang out in the sense that he was like them, but he was all often accused of being friends of sinners. And he hung around them, and he ministered to them, and he was among them, but never was he like them, you see? And so we need to be approachable to the world, but we do not need to be like the world. And we do not need to look down at the world. Why? Because we were the world. And without God, we would still be the living the way they live. And so we don't get angry at them. We don't, we don't get arrogant and say we're better than you because we're not. But we do need to hold the standard high. And what's the standard? Well, the Bible gave it. And we don't need to compromise it to reach the world. We need to be different. We need to live out the word of God in a loving way. And we preach the truth in love. And we reach people. Okay. Letter C. Those who have great impact for God are those who have great passion for him. Blink his passion. Fueled by meditation upon his word. And we talked about meditation in a previous lesson, but it's basically starting to think like the Bible thinks. We need to hear what the Bible says and, and take it in, but eventually we need to allow it to change how we think. Not just, listen, not just what we think. We need to let the Bible change how we think. You see? Don't just do Christian things. Be Christian. Don't just do biblical acts. Be a biblical person. You see? And we need to let the Bible change. And the only way to do that is by meditating on His Word. 
thinking on his word. And, and the reason we do that is because we have a passion for the author of the word, which is God. You see? Okay. Okay, letter D. And so there are three qualities presented in Deuteronomy 6, 5-7 through 7, that will enable you to have a spiritual influence. That's the blank. A spiritual influence in the lives of those about you. And so we kind of mentioned them a little bit in our reading. Christ-likeness, it equips you to be a God-loving example. A God-loving example. God, you have to be an example. You need to love God yourself first. Christ-likeness equips you to be a word-filled teacher. To instruct. And then Christ-likeness equips you to be a ministry-minded overseer. And these will be our next three lessons. And it's the fruit of this. This is the fruit of the kind of life we've been considering the last several weeks. The last several weeks, we've been teaching you how to love God yourself. And I think oftentimes, here's, here's the thing. As people, we're very good at seeing everybody else's problems. We're really good at that. And we want to fix everybody else's problems. But you need to first deal with your own problems. You see? We don't want to be hypocritical about this. We don't want to be the blind leading the blind. And so we need to fix our own problems. Then we're able to help others. And that's really what the first nine lessons have been all about. Getting yourself right with God. And now what we need to do is start shifting gears and allowing that Christ-like character within us to begin to affect others. Okay? And it starts by being a God-loving example. So number two. Loving God with all your heart. With all your heart. Berg said in his book, this quote, Like most of Israel in Moses' day, we too have very little impact for God upon others because we have very little passion for God. Like the rest of the world, we are, often, we are too often passionate about the matters of little consequence. We, we get ourselves all worked up about stuff that doesn't really matter. Now, we can enjoy the things of this life, but when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, we don't want to be regretting that we gave more of our passion to things that really aren't going to matter. You see. Yeah. Let it be. What you love and what you hate reveal what you are. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said that. What you love and what you hate reveal what you are what you are. I don't agree with everything Bob Jones Jr. said, but I agree with that. It's true. Our passions easily become our idols. I would go so far as to say your passions are your idols. Because what God wants, God wants for you to be passionate about Him primarily. And then you can allow other things in your life, but when you become passionate where something else is your life, then careful, because it can easily become an idol in your life. God wants you to be passionate about him, not just add him into your life. He wants to be the primary focus of your life. He wants to be the passion of your life. Priorities show, will show our true love. Our anxieties reveal our priorities. You don't become anxious about something unless it's a priority in your life. Does that make sense? You don't care about it then you won't be anxious about it. Our preoccupation reveals our priorities. What do you spend time on most? That's probably your priority. 
What are you always preoccupied with? And then when you're not doing it, what are you thinking about when you're not, even when you're not doing it? What are you preoccupied with? That, that reveals in your heart what your priority is. Our anger reveals our priorities. If you're angry about something, that means it's become a priority in your life. Make sense? Yeah. Better see this is helpful. No heart is neutral. No heart is neutral. N-E-U. English language, okay? N-E-U-T-R-A-L. No heart is neutral. What does that mean? Well, every heart is passionate about something. Every heart is passionate about something. And so biblical change leads to a passionate relationship with the God of heaven that makes every other love pale, that's the blank, pale in comparison. We need to get in love with God. We need to make God our passion. We ought to, if, if we're going to be anxious, it should be that we're not doing what God wants us to do. But then we fix it and we're not anxious anymore. If we're going to be preoccupied, if something's going to be running through our mind 24-7 and one thing all day is always running through our mind, it needs to be God. You see? If we're going to be angry, it needs to be a righteous anger. You see? That, we're not, that maybe we're not living the life God wants us to live or maybe, or maybe sin has corrupted one of our friends or something like that. We don't get angry at people, but we sure can get angry at sin, can't we? Yeah. He needs to be our priority. He needs to be our passion. And God needs to be so much our priority and so much our passion that really the other, the other loves in our life pale in comparison. And really the other loves in our life flow from the love we have for God. As we love God, well, what does God tell us to do? To love our family, doesn't he? As we love God, well, what does God tell us to do? To love people. You see? And so, so really the, the, love, the relationships that we love in our life need to flow primarily from a love and a passion for the God of the universe. Can I say this? Our love for the Bible needs to come from our love for God. And I think there's a lot of people who love the Bible in, in, a, in a literary sense, and in, a, in an interesting sense, and wow, this is cool and that's cool, but they don't even think about the God of the Bible. You see? And we have to primarily love our Creator, and our, that's why we love the Bible. Because it's His Word. You see? And we, we can't get so caught up in the interesting parts of things that we have forgotten who it is that we're serving, who it is that we're learning about, who it is that we're listening to. This isn't just another book. This isn't just a, this isn't just a classic. This is the Word of the living God, and we need to get right with Him and love Him and have a passion for Him, and that will direct our other passions. You see? You following? Yeah. Okay. Good. So, but no, no heart is neutral. Oh, I just don't care about anything. No, that's not true. <laughs> There's something you're passionate about. And let's just make sure that it's not more so than your relationship with God. Letter, number, letter, letter. number three. In Bible college, professors get all the time. Number B. Like, come on, guys. We'll just keep doing Letter three. No, number three. They messed me all up. All right. Those who love God may be labeled extravagant. That's a big word. Ready? I'll spell it for you. E-X-T-R-A-V-A-G-A-N-T. Extravagant. E-X-T-R-A-V-A-G-A-N-T. If you love God, here's what's going to happen. 
people around you who don't love God are going to think you're a little bit over the top. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Mary, her extravagant gift. Now, we're not going to turn to all these verses just for sake of time and preach through them. If I turned to them, it would be a whole message, and so I can't do it. But, but the story talks about Mary who broke her alabaster box. Do you know about that story? And inside the alabaster box, she had ointment to anoint the feet of Jesus. Now, that ointment was very, very expensive. And if I remember right, about a year's worth of wage. Very expensive ointment. And, and Jesus was in her home. And she couldn't get to his head to anoint his head. Because everyone was crowding around him. But she can get to his feet. And she anointed his feet. And, and those who were around them were like, why are you wasting that ointment? Wasting that ointment? It's Jesus, right? Okay? And so those who have reflected much on his forgiveness may even be accused of overdoing it in their giving. Now, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about giving your life, giving of yourself, giving of your time for God. And we're not even just talking about church, although that's primarily how God has given us to serve Him through the local church, hasn't it? That's His vehicle to get the gospel to the world, and that's His plan. But we need to serve God in more than just a local church. We need to serve God in our life. And, and people are going to be asking you, why do you spend so much time serving God? Why are you at church so much? Why are you always telling people about God? Why are you always doing these things? And they're, gonna, they're going to think that you are being a, here's the word, a fanatic. You might even have family members who say, well, I mean, it's good to love Jesus, but don't be a fanatic. I can't think of a better thing to be a fanatic about. I, if they call you a fanatic, good. Because <laughs> that, that's how the... That's how the lost views people who love the Lord, fanatics. They overdo it. They might even call you a cult member, because they don't know what that means. But because you've made something priority in your life, they think you're in some kind of cult. They don't know, cult means you don't believe Jesus is God as part of it, so they don't know what they're talking about. But what I am saying is this, they're going to think you're weird. And if your family thinks, that, if you have family or friends who are lost, have nothing to do with church, and they think the level of amount of time you spend serving God is good, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> you see? Because the lost often think people who love God are just over the top. And so that, this is to be expected, this should be an ED on expected, from those who express sincere love. Sincere love. Yeah. All right, let, number B. Number B. <laughs> Letter B. Okay. Mary's extravagant attention. Luke 10, 38-42, talk about Mary and Martha when Jesus came to their house. Remember that story? Jesus came to Mary and Martha's house. Mary and Martha were sisters. And immediately, Martha begins to get the meal prepared. And she starts, she goes to the kitchen or however their houses work, and she starts getting the meal prepared, and she starts setting the table, and she starts getting things ready. Well, Mary sees Jesus, and she immediately goes right to his feet and, and gazes into his eyes and, and is ready to hear from him. And Martha's like, Mary, help me out, you know. And, and Jesus, Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha for wanting to serve. Serving is good. But sometimes we get infatuated with serving God more than we get infatuated with God. 
And that's, that's, a, that's a danger, isn't it? But Mary was willing to even not be involved with helping Martha because she, if Jesus was there, she wanted to hear from Jesus. You follow me? She gave ex- extravagant attention. Mary gives her time and attention to the Lord. You're going to have to make time for it. You're going to have to make time for it. And you might even feel like, I can't, I can't, you know, have devotions. I can't read my Bible and pray. I've got too many things to do. You're going to have to make time for it. Because if it's, if it's, your, if it's your passion, then you're going to make time for it. You see? Now, some people have more time than others, and I understand that. But we need to give some time to spending time with our God. Okay? And your day is going to go way better. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> yeah. And so God-loving examples to the next generation are people who cannot get enough time with God. Letter C. Letter C. David's extravagant praise. In 2 Samuel 6, we, we hear about a victory that David had he gets back home, and he is just singing his heart out to the Lord. He's very excited. And he gets the, the Israel to do the same, and they are, they are just excited about what God's doing. And the Psalms of David are full of thoughts of God's deliverance and goodness and mercy. Well, in this situation, David, David was expressing praise. He was, he was thanking God and singing praises to God, and it was not appreciated by Michael which was his wife at the time, and because she did not share his gratitude to God. She was kind of annoyed that he was praising God so much. Anyway, God deserves praise, right? God deserves praise. And, and, and sometimes it gets to be a little bit extravagant. It doesn't mean it gets to be showy, and it doesn't mean it needs to get um, over the top in the sense where it becomes a distraction with the music and all of that, that's not what we're talking about necessarily. What we're talking about primarily is that it happens a lot and we're pretty excited about it. You see? When we're when we're singing congregational music, you should just be over the top, ready to praise the Lord about that. And you know, there's something cool about when the entire church is singing out and, and the extravagant love for God, it, it stirs within your heart an extravagant praise for God who doesn't really care if everyone else around them is annoyed by how loud they sing. Or how bad their voice is, even. Because what we're doing is praising God, who deserves it. And when we understand who it is we're singing to on a Sunday morning, then we're ready to just let it rip. Go ahead and sing out. Make your face all ugly, eat your mouth all big, and sing out for God, because he deserves extravagant praise. Next, letter D. Paul's extravagant service. Extravagant service. Paul knew that bonds and afflictions awaited him in Jerusalem, yet he remained resolute. He needed to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because God told him to go to Jerusalem. And his friends were like, no, Paul, if you do that, you're going to go to prison. Well, i got to do it, because God told me to do it. And his friends begged him not to go, but he went. And you, when you love God, you'll serve him in an extravagant way. You'll serve him in a way that makes your life maybe even more difficult. You'll serve him in a way that maybe even puts you in danger. Now, you better make sure that's what God wants you to do, 
But, but I'm telling you that if it's what God wants you to do, and you have an extravagant love for God, then you'll do it. And people around you will think you're crazy. And you'll do things that your family is going to think, you're, you're, you're ridiculous. You're over the top. When I, when I was called into ministry, I was in the middle of a full-time academic scholarship at Arizona State University. I was going to be a mechanical engineer with zero student debt. But God called me to ministry. And so I canceled it. And I went to Bible college. And I cannot tell you how many of my family were like, you are an idiot. Because that's, that's tens of thousands of dollars worth of scholarship money. But that none of that matters. Because when you love the Lord and you know he wants you to do something, you do it. You see? And, and plus, you know who he is. And you know that in the end, when you follow him, it's going to be better than if he didn't. But even, but even if it, what did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Yet will I serve him. And even if following God did end up in disaster, you love God and you do what he says. Because, and even if it's extravagant, even though it feels over the top to some, that's okay. Because your love is over the top, isn't it? And you're ready to follow God wherever he leads. Extravagantly. It only makes sense that our expression of love for God would be extravagant when you consider the extravagance of God's love for us. Let me just think about it. You know, as we consider all these things and all the stuff that we do for God, if you just stop and think about who God is, He deserves extravagance, doesn't He? He deserves anything we have to offer. He deserves more than we're able to offer. It, it really, really, you know, the lost will say we're being irrational with some of these things. You're being irrational with how much time you spend at church or with God or with God's people or, or whatever. You're, you're being irrational with, with how much you serve God and, and you're doing these things and it's irrational. No, actually, what's irrational is knowing that the God of the universe told you to do something and telling him no. That's irrational. If you really are thinking about it. But here's something that does feel irrational. That God would love us. I can't explain it to you. There's no rationality for it. We've got nothing to offer. In fact, in fact, the only thing we have to offer is his. And the only thing that we have to offer that's his, he gave us and we messed it up. And now we offer it back. Why does he love us so much? I don't know. Why did he just decide to be a human being and die for us on the cross? I couldn't tell you. There's no rational reason for that. It's just because of his love for us. Yeah. And so it's the least that we can do to love him extravagantly. In fact, you'll find this, when you do it, still not enough. But he deserves everything from us. Remember we talked about last time about Israel who would bring their, their crippled lambs to the altar? And they would keep the best lambs for themselves, and then they'd bring the leftovers God doesn't want your leftovers. God wants your best. He deserves your best. And your best isn't enough. But God asks your best, you see. How are we doing? And it's not just because that pastor up there said that. It's not really just because the Bible said, although it is, it's because of our God, who we love, who deserves it, you see. The God who loves us extravagantly, even though we don't deserve it. The God who is in control. The God who is sovereign, meaning he gets to do what he wants, and he deserves for us to follow him because he's God. Because of who he is, he deserves our best. Because, first of all, we have a love for him. You see? 
Yeah, he deserves it. He deserves extravagance. And if you have a passion for God, then that's the natural flow of things. Letter F, I love this. To know God is to love God. To know God is to love God. The more you know who God is, the more you'll love him. Peter, First Peter said that he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of God. What you need to do before you start learning what to do is you need to learn who it is that told you what to do. And the more, the closer you get to God, the more it's going to change who you are inside. And the more it changes who you are, the more that's going to change what you do. And you need to get close to God. Because to, to know God, truly, not just know about Him, but to know Him is to love Him. Yep. Good. Number four. Masters at meditation. Masters at meditation. We are all masters at meditation. We said that we every time we worry, we meditate, right? That's what worry is, is to take a thought and, and come at it at every possible angle. That's anxiety, isn't it? You have one thought, and you're just taking it apart in pieces and, and examining each part of that thought and, and taking it at all these different angles. That's worry, but, but if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. And what we're supposed to do is take the principles of the Word of God and break it apart in our mind and, and mold those things over and have that be the, the focus of everything we're thinking about where to the point where we can't hardly think about anything else because we're, we're meditating on the principles of the Word of God. That's med- meditation. But, but the same is true when we experience temptation. When you think about the first temptation in the Garden of Eden, go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. Go to Genesis 3. When we're tempted, here's what the devil does. He has you meditate about doing something he shouldn't be doing. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. Let's go back and see what the, what the serpent said. <clears throat> now, verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the garden, of the tree of the garden. Move back up. We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. Now, I don't remember God saying nothing about touching it, but she's maybe getting a little bit outside of what God said to start with. But verse 4 And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. And so here's what happened We have what God said. And now Satan's putting in a new thought that goes against what God said. Yeah, God said this, but let's think about this for a second. And here's what Satan starts to do. He starts to get her to meditate on what she knows she's not supposed to do. This is how, this is how temptation works. Temptation is, is when you start thinking about and trying to rationalize why you should do what God has clearly said not to do. But we meditate on that, don't we? And we start thinking to ourselves, well, it's not that big a deal because... And we start breaking up, up the temptation in pieces and we start coming at it at all these different angles until we find one that in our brain... Ration- Every time we sin, we've rationalized it in our mind. Every time we've sinned, we rationalized it first in our mind and decided it's okay to do that. Like no one else should, but in this situation right now, I should. And that's what, what Satan did to her. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, 
and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan said, look, if you do this, yeah, God said not to, but if you do, you're going to be better for it, right? And he gets in your mind, and he starts to make you think that it's better for you if you go ahead and do what he said not to do. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food. You see, do you hear the rationalizing and the meditation? Oh, well, I mean, God said not to, but it is good for food. As if she doesn't have all the other food. She just told Satan she has all the trees. But this one is, well, I mean, it is good for food. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. It is pretty. And a tree desired to make one wise, which is a lie. But she's rationalized. She's meditating on it. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave to her husband. And so that's what we do, doesn't it? We know what God said. And then something else pops in our mind. Whether that's the devil or our flesh, it's hard to tell sometimes, isn't it? Our flesh is pretty rotten all by itself. And we get these thoughts in our mind. Well, I know that I should, shouldn't do that, but, you know, teenagers or even young, young uh, adults, I know that I shouldn't be with this person, but you make me happy. And God, and God did, and God said, let's not get in relationships with people who are not Christian. God said that, be not unequally yoked. I know that. But, but God did make me for relationships, right? And God did make me for fellowship. And I, I'm supposed to be married. God wants me to be married. And this person does show interest in me. And this person does, you know, he says that he likes me or she likes me. And, you know, and, and plus, what are the odds that we bumped into each other, you know, right here? And, and we try to get all these rationalizations uh, into our mind. And eventually we convince ourselves, after meditating on sin, meditating on sin, we eventually get to the place where we go ahead and do it. I know I should love people, but that guy, he's sure hard to love. You know, and they're annoying and they do these things. And they know, they know it annoys me, and they do it anyway. And, and we rationalize in our mind, you see? And we meditate. Here's what happens. Whenever our mind, whenever it pops into our mind, maybe I should be mean to that person. Instead, say, no, wait, I'm not going to even think of that anymore. Why? Because God said, be kind one to another, you see? Love one another, you see? And so when we have the temptation pop into our mind, when Satan said, hath God said? She should have said, yes, he did. Get out of my face. That's, that's how we have to think of it in our mind. When, when we know God said it, it doesn't matter what rationalizations come our way. It doesn't matter how much sense it makes in our mind. We know God said no. We know God said do that. You see? And we need to make that our first, our first filter. Then we can start maybe working out details. After we know what God said, maybe we can work out some processes and all of that. But we, we, cannot, we need to be careful about meditating ourselves out of God's will. See? And so her passions, Eve's word, were inflamed by meditating upon the virtues and benefits of the fruit. The fruit what's the fruit? Well, it's the sin. And so we think about what God said not to do, and we think about how good it will be for our life, and that's where we get in trouble. And so we will meditate, and we do meditate. Our only option is the choice of fuel for our reflection. We Listen, we don't get a choice whether or not we meditate on something. We only get to choose what we meditate on. You see? 
And we get to choose, am I going to meditate on the truths of the Word of God, or am I going to meditate on this thing that I know I shouldn't do? Or am I going to meditate on this worry and anxiety that, that is running my life? Instead, we can meditate on the truths of the Word of God. I'm not going to meditate on these what-ifs, like what if this, what if that, what if that. And we know that God knows the future. We know that God's in control. And so we just do what God wants us to today and let him take care of the what-ifs. But sometimes we, we don't meditate on that. We meditate on the anxieties and the worries and the stress. Or sometimes we meditate on the sin in our life. But instead, we need to meditate on the truths of the word of God. Yeah. And so let it be, people who are passionate about God spend much time listening to and reflecting upon the Word of God, the Blanco's Word, capital W, Word of God. And so you cannot, you cannot, listen, you cannot meditate on the Word of God if you don't know the Word of God. You see? So the first step is listening to. The first step is reading your Bible every day. The first step is going to church whenever you can. Why? So that you can hear the Word of God. So you got something to meditate on. You see? So we'll, we'll uh, be done with this. Here in a second, here's what we do for those maybe who aren't here every time, that at the end of service, we're going to take some time and we're going to make some decisions right now as, as we've been led. And hopefully God's been working in your life, working in your heart. And, and what we don't want to do is what James, James says this. James says, don't be a forgetful hearer. Right? He says... You're beholding in the, some, sometimes we're like someone who beholds our face in a glass and then leaves without changing anything. Like you see your messed up hair, but you don't want to do anything about it and you just leave. And then you go throughout your day with your messed up hair. So James says, here's what you do. Make decisions while you see the problem, right? And that's what invitations for. That's what invitations for on Sunday morning. And every, that's why we always try to have an invitation because the best time, the best time to fix your hair is when you see it in the mirror. You can you can leave the mirror, walk down the road. Oh yeah, man, my hair. <laughs> no, just fix it when you see it. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to take some time while we're looking in the glass, while we're seeing things clearly through the through the mirror of the Word of God, and start making some changes. Okay, so here's some ways to help with that. Letter A. Respond by repenting of other loves that have taken priority over wholehearted love for God. We have a lot of things we love. And that's okay, as long as the love you have for God is primary. And oftentimes, it's not that. Oftentimes, we have this love, and God just happens to fit underneath that. And if that's what's happening, if something is taken priority from, from God, then we need to repent of that and put God in his rightful place. One, letter B. Respond by seeking ways to demonstrate extravagant love to God. And then letter C, respond by asking God to make you a God-loving example so that you can begin the process of reaching people and influencing lives to love God like you do. And so Brother Josh, he's going to play some invitation music, and as he does, let's respond.